Welcome back for another episode of The Last Word, the podcast that asks, what is the significance of a person's dying words and what is their impact on those left behind? I'm your creator and host, Sarah Faith. In the show notes, you can find all of my social media links, including a Facebook group for fans and some of my other projects. If you enjoy this episode, share it with someone. When you subscribe and give that shiny five-star rating, it really helps out the show in the algorithm. This week, we are time traveling back to the 20th century. Two world wars, disco was born and died. Money laundering remained popular with criminals, and the powers that be were up to their eyeballs and covert ops. Let's go back to a time when DNA was something you heard about once on Unsolved Mysteries, and forensic files taught us that there is no such thing as a perfect crime. But when there is no evidence and no new leads, the cold case is born. When I come back, I have disappearances, mysterious deaths, shadowy meetings, mistaken identities, DNA, and the FBI. Stay tuned. Welcome back. It is a brutal fact that most cold cases will remain unsolved. Let's break down the numbers. There are about 285,000 cold cases in the U.S. Of those cases, one in five will name a new suspect. Of those cases, one in 20 will be arrested. Of those cases, one in 100 of those trials will end in conviction. But we shouldn't give up hope. Authorities closed an impressive number of cases in 2021. I'm looking at two unrelated cases whose endings are so similar, it's eerie. First stop, Iowa, 1971. Maureen Brubaker Farley grew up in Sioux City, Iowa, and was the eldest of seven children. The young couple's marriage was off to a challenging start when her husband, David, was ordered to serve time at Anamosa's correctional facility. Maureen announced that she was moving across the state to be closer to her husband, David. Now, I'm picturing a newlywed, 17-year-old girl packing her bags and heading off to the big city to start a new life. Maybe Maureen had a little bit of that 70s moxie that we loved about women from that era. It was brave for her to leave her large family and the only life she had ever known to be close to her new husband as he worked his way through a hard time. I wonder what dreams Maureen had for her own life. When she arrived in Cedar Rapids, Maureen rented a room on 10th Street and found work nearby as a waitress. Money was tight, but she kept in touch with her family. 
her employer found her to be reliable. The last interaction with Maureen was when she borrowed money for a pack of cigarettes. Don't judge, it was the 70s. Investigation of her rented room showed the half-empty pack of cigarettes that she had to borrow money to buy. Where was Maureen? Money was tight and her car was parked out back with a full tank of gas. On Friday, September 24th, Kevin and Danny, two local boys, were out hunting with rifles. In a ravine near some railroad tracks, they came upon a junk car. Laying across its trunk was a woman. One leg propped up and her back was resting against the rearview window. She appeared to be sleeping. She wore clothes, but no shoes. The boys did not want to disturb the sleeping woman and kept walking toward Highway 30. Later, they turned and headed back. When they reached the junk car in the ravine, the woman was in the same position. They decided to take a closer look. Her skin was discolored. Frightened, the boys ran away in the direction of a nearby tavern, then thought better of it. They turned and ran back across the tracks to Danny's home, where they told his mother they had found a body. She did not believe them and demanded the boys take her to the body. At 6.40 p.m., Danny's mother saw a woman lying atop a car in a ravine. She took the boys with her to a nearby farm and phoned the police. Initial theories included Maureen's body had been thrown into the ravine from the road or placed there with care to be spotted more easily. The investigation determined that she had been killed elsewhere. Blunt trauma to the side of her head indicated that she had been disabled in a surprise attack. Police reached out to the public for information on Maureen's whereabouts between September 17th and September 22nd. Maureen was five feet tall, very slim, had a light complexion and long brown hair. There was no alcohol in her system. September 29, 1971, an article appeared in the Cedar Rapids Gazette. Assistant Chief of Police Kenneth Van Waugh said that several items were missing from Maureen's rented room and the police were very interested to find them. Our investigation has revealed that she never went anywhere without her purse, which is one of the items missing. It contained a driver's license, altered to show that she was 21 years old, the usual makeup articles, rent receipts, miscellaneous family pictures, a photo of a Marine in uniform, her social security card, and a green pad which she carried to make notes. Marine's purse also contained a brown leather wallet with red velvet lining that her husband had made for her during his incarceration. The only clothes missing from her body were her shoes. The bottoms of her feet were clean, which told police that they had been removed after her murder. 
Four pairs of shoes were missing from her closet, which left police not knowing what shoes to look for. Police charged the public with turning over any of those items to the police if located. After all leads were exhausted and no progress could be made, the case went cold. In 2009, DNA was tested but produced no new leads. Of course, when we're testing for DNA, we have to have something to compare it to. If there's nothing which to compare it, it just sits there until something else comes up, right? After all leads were exhausted and no progress could be made, the case went cold. In 2009, DNA was tested but produced no new leads. In an interview with Maureen's family in 2010, they recalled that because Marie was born on 4th of July, everybody said she'll be a firecracker. She was just special and always wanted to grow up so fast. Investigators obtained samples from Marine's body that indicated she had been sexually assaulted. On October 5th, 2021, those DNA samples produced a match, George M. Smith. Police said, the case will be closed without pursuing prosecution as the suspect passed away in 2013 at the age of 94. Police Chief Wayne German went on to say, No matter how much time has passed, our officers are committed to seeking out justice for all victims of violent crimes as well as their families. I am extremely proud of the generations of Cedar Rapids officers who contributed to bringing this once cold case to a resolution. Investigators learned that George was acquainted with Maureen from the diner where she worked. She was only 17. He was in his 50s. According to police, they found it suspicious that Smith approached them several times asking for updates on Maureen's case. Smith worked at a liquor store near Maureen's rented room. He operated a hauling service which may have given him an opportunity to dispose of her body in that ravine. He was interviewed extensively by police in 1971, but there was no solid evidence, and Smith refused to take a polygraph. When I found George M. Smith's obituary, I found that he had a nickname, Cigar George, because he always had a cigar in his mouth. He was survived by eight children 23 grandchildren and 32 great-grandchildren. There were many words written about his very long life, but I wonder if Maureen crossed his mind when he looked into the faces of his children and grandchildren. In 2002, Maureen's father passed away not knowing her mother, Mary, told the Sioux City Journal, I told you guys it was George Smith. They kind of knew it back then, but they couldn't prove it. We can rest, and we know he did it. We just figure he'll suffer in hell for it. What's done is done. At least we know it was him. We can quit wondering. We can let it go. When we come back... I'll look at a case that takes place here in Atlanta 
in 1995. I'm calling this segment The Long Wait, but it also applies to Maureen's story because 50 years to wait for an answer is a very long wait. June 7, 1995, 14-year-old Nicole Smith was walking to school with her sister when she realized she had forgotten a homework assignment. Pressed for time, she opted to take a shortcut home. That choice put her in the path of a male who beat her, assaulted her, and shot her. Retired Atlanta detective Vince Velasquez said he reopened the case in 2002, but encountered no new leads until 2004. With the aid of forensics, police were able to match Nicole's attack to a similar attack of 13-year-old Betty Brown. This attack also took place in a wooded area of East Point. That's a neighborhood in Atlanta. Following the assault, the girl escaped Armed with a DNA match, leads were pursued through the media, including America's Most Wanted. When Detective Velasquez retired in 2017, he knew ever-improving technology would help solve the case. The case was in the hands of Detective Scott Demeester now. According to CBS News, Demeester used genealogy records to develop a person of interest and obtained a sample of DNA. December 2021, just after Christmas, the GBI, Georgia Bureau of Investigation, labs matched the DNA Demeester had obtained from the suspect with the evidence. The man they believed was responsible for Nicole's murder and the assault of the girl in East Point died in hospice care in August 2021, following liver and kidney failure. The police kept the attention focused on the girls and their families and did not immediately release the suspect's name. 49-year-old Kevin Arnold had lived near Nicole Smith. Betty Brown, the victim who was 13-year-old at the time and provided a description to police of her attacker, became friends with Nicole's mother, Aquanella Smith. At the press conference, Ms. Smith said, I never imagined this person would be deceased. There are so many unanswered questions I had for him that I could never ask and get answers. But I would never say it was closure for me because I'll live with this pain for the rest of my life. I just take it one day at a time. There's nothing more I can say right now. My feelings are all over the place. There is not a pill that can take away this pain. Betty Brown spoke directly to Miss Smith. I'm not okay with the situation on how long it took us to get here, but I'm happy that we are finally here and he is no longer out there able to do the things he did to me and Nicole and to others. This is a bittersweet moment. I'm mad that I never got the opportunity to face him. When we come back, I will look at a case involving four men 
but only one lived to tell the tale, and we still don't have all the answers. Stay tuned. Chuck Morgan was an escrow agent in Arizona's 1970s real estate boom. Chuck had alluded to his wife, Ruth, that he had conducted business with mafia families, but he didn't want to go into any details. He added that she and the kids were better off not knowing the details of his business associations. Things were heating up for Chuck. Arizona was cracking down on crime syndicates who used escrow agents to hide their assets. March 22, 1977, Chuck left for work but did not return. It came to light that Chuck may have been a key witness for the state in a land fraud case against a mafia crime family. Three days later, around 2 a.m., Ruth awoke to a thump. Chuck stumbled through the back door, unable to speak. Ruth said, I was in bed and the dog started barking. I got up and went to the door and opened it and there was Chuck. He was missing a shoe, had one plastic handcuff around one ankle and around his hands. When he motioned to his throat and didn't say a word, I asked him, can you talk? Can you write? He shook his head yes. So I went and got a tablet and a pen. He wrote that his throat had been painted with a hallucinogenic drug and that the drug could drive him irrevocably insane or destroy his nervous system and kill him. I wanted to call a doctor and the police, but he was adamant that we would be signing a death warrant for the entire family. Chuck's voice returned in a week. He told his wife that his kidnappers had stolen his treasury identification and that he had been working covertly with the federal government for two to three years, attempting to bring down local crime rings. Chuck had survived the kidnapping and poisoning, but he knew his days were numbered. A bulletproof vest became part of his daily attire, and he insisted on driving his daughters to and from school each day. May of 1977, Chuck disappeared again. Ruth watched the door and hoped Chuck would stumble home once more. After nine days, Ruth answered the phone. Ruthie? The female caller said, Chuck is all right. Ecclesiastes 12 verses 1 through 8. And the caller hung up. Was this a message or a secret code? This is a summary of that Bible verse. Men are afraid of a high place and of terrors on the road. Remember him before the silver cord is broken and the golden bowl is crushed. Then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the spirit will return to God who gave it. Two days later, Chuck's body was found in the desert, the victim of a gunshot wound to the back of his head. 
killed by his own 357 Magnum that lay in the car beside him. Ruth claimed foul play, but the police said it was a suicide. How can a man physically shoot himself in the back of the head? Ruth said that Chuck would never have committed suicide, and if he had, he would have left a note for his family. Here's what they did find next to Chuck's body. A map hand-drawn by Chuck to the location of his body and a pair of sunglasses that did not belong to him. Investigators uncovered more bizarre clues. Pinned to the inside of his underwear was a $2 bill with names written in block letters. Acevedo, Bejarano, Cairo, Duarte, Encinas, Fuente, and Gradillas. On the front of the bill was the list with the list of names was Ecclesiastes 12. Arrows were drawn near the bill's serial number to indicate the verses. On the back, the signers of the Declaration of Independence were numbered one through seven. Investigators concluded that some lines and city names indicated a map of possible drug smuggling routes from Tucson to Mexico. One of Chuck's teeth was found wrapped in a handkerchief. In the trunk, police found weapons, ample ammunition, and a CB radio. The car had also been modified to be unlocked through the fender. His car was impounded and later broken into, and his office was ransacked. days later, police received a call from a woman who went by Green Eyes. She said she had information about Chuck's death. She claimed to be the caller who relayed the Bible passage to Ruth. She claimed she met Chuck at a hotel the night before his disappearance. She said he had a briefcase containing thousands in cash that he planned to use to pay off the hitman and walk away. According to Green Eyes, Chuck took the cash to pay off the hitman, but was double-crossed. Three weeks after Chuck's death, Ruth said several people alleging to be FBI agents showed up at her door. They opened the door and showed their identification very fast. They said they wanted to come in and look through the house. They never said what they were looking for, and to this day, I don't even know what they were looking for. The legitimacy of these agents has yet to be established. Were the scribbles on the $2 bill and the Bible passage an encoded message for the FBI? Investigative reporter Don Devereaux believed Chuck was murdered. His contacts at the FBI told him that no one had ever heard of Chuck Morgan. Devereaux said, when I made a Freedom of Information Act request to the FBI, they had never heard of Mr. Morgan, despite the fact that they obviously opened an investigation, despite the fact the FBI interviewed Mr. Morgan's attorney. They were all over this thing like a blanket for a while. 
But now they've never heard of this guy. He never existed. No card, no file, nothing. Rumors abounded that Chuck was involved either in illegal activities or working un- undercover for the feds. His death has still not been ruled a suicide or a homicide. Things are about to get twisty. You better hold on to something. Journalist Don Devereaux is considered a leading expert on Chuck's case. In February 1990, Unsolved Mysteries aired an episode about Chuck Morgan's disappearance and murder. Devereaux discovered that Chuck was heavily involved in Tucson's money laundering scene. He discovered that Chuck kept duplicate records of these transactions. Devereaux theorizes that Chuck was killed over these records. Some transactions originated from Southeast Asia and involved exchanges of gold bullion and platinum. He was around the edges of a couple of very large organized crime groups in Arizona at that time. It was very easy to get in over your head, and I suspect that over the years, Mr. Morgan was in that kind of situation. He was doing perhaps upwards of a billion dollars of escrow work in bullion and platinum. These were transactions that only existed on paper. He was a straight businessman that probably got a little too close to the flame. I've never seen in all my years as a journalist a fellow take himself out to the desert wearing a bulletproof vest and shoot himself in the back of the head. There is a great likelihood that Mr. Morgan was, in fact, doing something with the government. I think this was a guy who was extremely naive about a lot of things. I think somebody blew his cover and he got killed. I think that the $2 bill provided the basis for some kind of a code. What seemed to be missing, however, was the document that the $2 bill would unlock. If he was quietly providing assistance to the U.S. government and monitoring the activities of one or more major organized crime families, then he wasn't a villain. He was a good guy. And they need to know that. That is a quote from Don Devereaux. Three months after that episode aired, 35-year-old Doug Johnston arrived for his night shift at a computer graphics firm. The man had no direct connection to Chuck Morgan's murder, but investigators discovered an indirect connection to Devereaux. Johnston's employer was across the street from Devereaux's home, and the men drove near identical cars, 1977 Toyota station wagons. Devereaux believed that he was the intended target. Police purported that Johnston's death was a suicide, but there was no gun residue on the victim, and the gun was nowhere to be found. Devereaux learned soon after that there were multiple hits on him for information he had uncovered. This was confirmed by a CIA official and an Israeli intelligence informant. If Don Devereaux was the confirmed target, how or why is he still alive? 
A year later, Devereaux was contacted by fellow reporter Danny Casalero. The two agreed to share info about Chuck's transactions in gold bullion. August 8, 1991, Casalero met with a former employee of a major defense contractor, William Turner, to discuss the octopus, a covert government operation Casalero was investigating. The next day, Casalero was found dead in his hotel bathtub by the maid at 12.30 p.m. There were eight cuts to his left wrist and four to his right. The razor was found in the bathtub and his death was ruled a suicide. His family was not notified for two days. In that time, the hotel room was cleaned by professionals the day after his death. Evidence was discarded. A member of the cleanup crew remembered seeing bloody towels, which implied that someone had tried to clean the blood off the floor prior to discovery. His brother Tony asked about his brother's papers. Hundreds of notes and documentation vanished and have never been recovered. Suicide with a razor seemed unlikely to family members because they knew that he was squeamish about needles and blood. The coroner's exam noted that bruises were found on his arm, sorry, his arm and head, which indicated that he was not alone at his time of death. There was a mystery guest at Casalero's funeral. A highly decorated military official placed a medal on Casalero's casket. That man and his connection to the deceased have never been identified. Was Casalero murdered? If so, if, if so by whom? The people behind the software deal he was investigating called The Promise? The Justice Department? The Mafia? Who was in the room when his wrists were slashed? Why was the room cleaned and evidence compromised before the family was notified? Why was there a two-day delay? His case was aired on Unsolved Mysteries March 10, 1993. Poor Doug Johnston! He seems to have been the victim of wrong place, wrong time. Why has his death not been declared a murder when all evidence points to homicide? Here are several quotes that appeared in an article in the Arizona Republic on May 17, 1990. Ken angry, unsure over violent death of happiest man. Doug sipped a can of Mountain Dew and listened to music on his 10-year-old daughter's headphones when a bullet to the brain ended his life. He was found slumped over the steering wheel, music still playing. His sister, Linda Jennings, said, It's a violent death and we're all still very shook. Johnston's father-in-law, Walter Reese, said, There's no way in hell he committed suicide. 
Johnston had recently graduated with honors from ITT and accepted a drafting position. He went back to school to get a better life for his wife, Denise, and daughter, Amber. He told his wife, finally, we got our little toe out of the forest. Denise said that Doug felt he had cheated death after walking away recently from a car accident. She said, he had thought, if I can come out of this alive, nothing can hurt me. Denise added, I thought so too. Thank you for joining me for another episode of The Last Word. Before I go, here are a couple of my favorite quotes. From 19th century orator and suffragist Lucy Stone, Make the world better. And the fabulous George Harrison may have said it best, Love one another. <laughs>